0: We are continuing in our one word series today. You know, as Christians, we are learning, or at least we ought to be learning to see beyond the natural. To look beneath the visible to the work of the invisible God. Uh, Let me share with you some examples. Here's one. Right back here, our baptistry. This pool of water. What do you see? Or maybe I should say, what would uh, the average non-believer or outsider see when they witness a baptism? They would see somebody going down into that water and being dunked and then coming back up, soaking wet. That's what we see physically. But we, by faith, know that there's more than meets the eye when it comes to a baptism. What we see is way more than what I just described. What we see is someone who has come to the point in his or her belief that they want to dedicate and devote their lives to Jesus Christ. What we see is somebody identifying with Christ with his death, burial, and resurrection, dying to sins, being buried in water as Jesus was buried in that grave, and coming up victoriously as Jesus was raised from the dead. What we see when we witness a baptism is a precious human encountering the blood of Christ in that pool of water, making contact with it so that his or her sins can be forgiven and so that they can be given the gift of the Spirit and be brought into communion with God. We see way more than what meets the eye when it comes to a baptism. We're able to look beyond the natural. We can see beneath the visible to the work of the invisible God. Here's another example. What about marriage? What do you see in a marriage? A man and woman coming together and committing themselves to one another, being devoted to one another for a lifetime. That's all true. That's what marriage is. But Paul in Ephesians 5 says there's more than meets the eye when it comes to marriage. That marriage in a mysterious way is actually a picture of the relationship of Christ and His church. It is a demonstration of Christ's love for his bride, the church, and his bride's devotion to her Lord. That husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That wives should be devoted to their husbands as the church is devoted to her Lord. And so if you're a Christian married couple, you have a high calling. You are called to exhibit the relationship between Christ and his church, So there's more than meets the eye when it comes to marriage. And we're able to look beyond the visible to see the invisible. Even our status as those who are saved and redeemed uh, is, is reconfigured by Paul. He says, when we are raised, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Does it feel like that to you as you go throughout your daily life? Does it feel to you as a baptized believer that you are seated in a sense already with Christ in the heavenly places? That's what Paul says, that in a sense, being one with Christ means we are already experiencing the glory that we will experience after our resurrection, that we can already see ourselves and and be assured that that is our place in this universe. So as we go throughout this life, we are able to look beyond what can be seen. that which is unseen we can look beyond the visible to that which is invisible the work of the invisible god all around us natural events like these that i've just described and many more are endowed with supernatural significance and nowhere is this truer than at the cross at the cross of christ what do you see at the cross As you pictured the cross, as you envision Jesus on the cross in your mind's eye, you may see a man hanging there in pain. And if you back up a few days' time, you see a man being put on trial, arrested before that. A man sentenced to death. A man beat within inches of his life. A man forced to carry his instrument of execution through the streets of Jerusalem. A man whose hands and feet were impaled with spikes into that coarse wood. A man who was lifted up on the cross for all who passed by to see. You might see the man heaving and groaning in pain, speaking a few words, then breathing his last, dying there on that hill right outside Jerusalem. All that's true. All that is described for us in the pages of history. But we as Christians know that when it comes to the cross, there's more than meets the eye. There's more than just the physical, the natural, the visible going on. There's something very important of the utmost importance happening behind the scenes. What else do you see at the cross? If you're a baptized believer, you ought to see more than just the scenario that I described. What else do you see? What do you see behind the scenes? What do you see beneath the surface? What we ought to see is the Son of God is hanging there and He's receiving the punishment for our sin so that we can receive His righteousness. As Christians, we believe that that is the purpose of the cross. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why God planned for His Son to die on the cross. He is there bearing our sins and the guilt of those sins so that we can be righteous. So that we can be made righteous and justified in the eyes of God. A couple of passages explain this to us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So much is packed into those few words. I mean, the essence of the gospel is distilled in that one verse, that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus, who knew no sin, who was morally perfect, who did not sin not even once in His life, was laden with all the sins that have ever been committed throughout the course of history, so that we, as sinners could become the righteousness of God. Similarly, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Another distillation of the gospel here. Peter says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. He bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So one way that we put this is, He bears our guilt, the guilt that sin produces, so that we can be proclaimed innocent before God. That is the most unfair trade that has ever been made in the history of mankind. Jesus bears the guilt of sin that we deserve to bear, so that we before God can be proclaimed innocent. Of the sins that we committed, that Jesus is taking within his own body, and nailing them to the cross. So that's what's going on beneath the surface, behind the scenes. But there's something else going on here too. There's something else going on here, and that something else is what we're talking about this morning. The something else that I'm referring to is something that we have difficulty seeing. We can see, as Christians, what I just laid out for you. These verses from 2 Corinthians and 1 Peter we can see that Jesus bore our, the guilt of our sin on the cross. We don't, we don't have much trouble with that. But what I want to share with you this morning is that it's not only that Jesus bore our guilt. He's also bearing the shame of our sin so that we can receive honor. He bears the guilt of our sin so that we can be proclaimed innocent. But He also bears the shame of it the dishonor of it, so that we can be made honorable, so that we can receive honor in God's sight. And we don't understand that as well as the guilt side of it. And so our word today is shame. And hopefully by the end of our time together, we will come to a better understanding of what this means. The fact that Jesus not only bore our guilt, but the shame of our sin on the cross. And I'll admit to you, this has been a difficult topic for me. And it's reminded me that in my own life and in my own studies, the shame of sin has been neglected. Now, maybe it was taught and preached about when I was growing up and maybe I just wasn't listening. But for some reason, that has not made its way into my inner being like the guilt side of it. So this study has been hard for me to really get to the heart and the root of what this idea is all about. The fact that Jesus bore our shame. Now, maybe some of you out there are thinking, well, what's the difference between guilt and shame? They seem like sort of the same concept. Maybe just you're using two different words to describe the same thing. Well, certainly, there are some similarities between guilt and and shame but we need to we need to make a contrast here because there are some important differences. So pay attention here this is important for us to understand what it means that Jesus bore our guilt and also bore our shame. Those are two different things. Our guilt comes from breaking the law of God. From doing that which is wrong, that which we know is wrong in his sight. But our shame in a different sort of way, comes from breaking our relationship with God. So the guilt comes in the inside from disobeying the law of God. The shame comes from understanding how our disobedience has impacted and damaged our relationship with God. So guilt is more about me and shame is more about my relationship that has been disrupted. Because of sin. Guilt is an internal sense of moral failure. Shame is an external sense of dishonor before God. I know that I am wrong in here and I feel guilty about it. I know that what I have done wrong has affected my relationship with God. And I'm ashamed of it. Let me try to illustrate here. In the movie The Little Rascals, which came out in the 90s, but which was based on a television series from long ago, long before my time. Alfalfa Switzer is in love with Darla. Are these names ringing a bell to some of you? Some of of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Alfalfa is in love with Darla. The only problem is, he belongs to this club. Do you remember the name of it? The He-Man Woman Haters Club. He is a charter member. And his best friend Spanky is the president. And so... Being in love with this girl, Darla, is, of course, strictly forbidden. I mean, that's the number one rule of the club. You can't fall in love with a girl. This is the He-Man Woman Haters Club. So to prove to Darla that he is fully devoted, he plans to have a picnic with her inside the clubhouse itself, the clubhouse of the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Uh, But disaster ensues, the clubhouse burns down, and all the other members of the club find out about this cardinal sin. That Alfalfa uh, has been seeing Darla, that he's in love with Darla. That he's breaking the number one rule of the club. Now guilt is what Alfalfa would feel from breaking the rule. There was a rule on the books, the number one rule of the club... You can't fall in love with the girl. This is the He-Man Womanators Club. So Alfalfa would feel guilt from breaking that rule. But shame is what he would feel from how breaking that rule damaged his relationship with his buddies, with the other club members. So guilt is what he feels from disobeying the rule. Shame is what he feels for how disobeying it damaged his relationship with spanky and the rest now a more serious example would be let's say that you wronged your spouse that you did something in your relationship that that was just wrong in the eyes of the lord according to his will for your life you would feel guilt inside for what you did because you knew you broke a rule you violated god's will But you would feel shame in the way that it damaged your relationship with your husband or your wife. The guilt is what goes on on the inside. The shame is what you feel when your spouse comes to understand what you did. The shame is on the outside. We can more easily understand guilt than shame. And we can understand shame to a degree, But we understand guilt better. Why is that? Well, those who study such things, the experts, the anthropologists, they tell us we are primarily a guilt-based culture. This is how we operate. We make decisions primarily on the basis of what's right or wrong. There's an emphasis on internal codes of conduct, an emphasis in Western culture in American life, on independence, on standing alone, On being a Lone Ranger, much more emphasis on that than interdependence, than this uh, sense of being a part of a larger community. And so for that reason, we're more guilt-based. In shame-based cultures, people decide what, what they ought to do on the basis of what will bring honor or dishonor. So when you get outside the Western world, outside of America, outside of Europe, and you go to places in North Africa or countries in the Middle East, or in Far East, in Asia, you come to understand that they think differently, they operate differently. They are more shame-based, whereas we are more guilt-based. They make decisions based on what will bring honor or dishonor for them amongst the community, whereas we make decisions based on what we believe internally is right or wrong. In traditional Japanese culture, for instance... People would, uh, make contracts with one another without signing anything, uh, without putting any collateral forth. They would make contracts on the basis, on the basis of their good name. And they would shake on it, and the person loaning somebody some money would have no doubt that that money would be repaid before the loan ran out. Because if it was not, that person's honor would be on the line. And that person would rather die than default on the loan because he would be dishonored, because he would be shamed and his whole family would be shamed. And, and this developed into what was called ritual suicide. That people, people, if they couldn't repay the loan, they would take their own life. Now, if that sounds absurd to you, that proves that we operate a bit differently in this culture, that we are not shame-based. Now, that's an extreme example. Somebody taking their own life because they would rather die than be shamed from not being able to to live up to their word? In 1871, the U.S. Marines invaded an island off the coast of Korea. The United States prevailed in the conflict and they captured 100 Korean soldiers. The Marines were shocked when the captured Koreans began throwing themselves into the river and they began taking their own lives. And those who did not take their own lives, they begged the, U, the United States Marines to kill them, to take, take my life, rather than return them safely to Korea. Why? Because the shame and the loss of honor that accompanied defeat was worse than death. They knew that if they died, they would, they would be held up as, as honorable heroes. But if they went back defeated they and their families could never escape the dishonor and the shame that accompanied defeat. And again, if that sounds crazy to you, it proves that we think differently here than over there. Now here's the kicker. Biblical culture was also shame-based. All of the cultures that we read about on the pages of Scripture, Jewish culture, Roman culture, Greek culture, they were more shame-oriented than we are. And so we've got to put on the shame-based glasses in order to be able to really understand and grasp the message of the Scripture sometimes. Now, yes, it's true that sin brings about guilt. I am not questioning that whatsoever. Sin brings about guilt, but it also brings about shame. It's true that Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, when they broke God's rule about taking the fruit of that tree, they felt guilt on the inside because they had disobeyed God's explicit command to not eat from that tree. God said, you can have fruit from any other tree in the whole garden, just not that one. But then the serpent slithered his way into the garden and into their heads and convinced them that that was the tree they ought to want to eat from. And so they did. And they felt guilt from doing that, from disobeying an explicit command of God. But the Scriptures also say they also felt shame. Before the fall, before the great rebellion, before the decision to sin against God instead of being obedient to God, they were naked and they were not ashamed. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. But after... They realized that they were naked and they stitched together some coverings for themselves. And most importantly, they tried to hide from God. They not only felt guilty for breaking his law, they were ashamed of themselves. They were ashamed. And they didn't want to be in God's presence anymore. They were in God's presence in a very special way in the garden The Scriptures describe God as walking through the garden and walking with them as as you would with a friend. But now, as a result of sin, they not only feel guilt, they feel such shame. They don't even want to be in the presence of God. I don't even want God to see me. I feel so ashamed. Guilt and shame. They were not only stripped of their innocence when they took of that fruit, but also of their honor. They not only experienced the guilt of sin, but also the shame. And there are a lot more passages that we could look at to describe the shame of sin and the fact that biblical culture was shame-based. But I just want to share one more from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 54, verse 4. The prophet says, as he's looking ahead to the future, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Fear not, a time is coming when shame will pass away, when dishonor will be no more, when you will no longer be disgraced. And if that doesn't sound like just fantastic news to you, that is proof again that we are operating in a different kind of culture. This would have been the very best news for those who struggled as God's people did with the shame of sin. But we don't often struggle with the shame of sin, do we? In fact, we live in a culture where people are unabashedly unashamed of the way that they live. And there's cultural phrases that, you know, we sort of drop here and there that shows us we are not a people who is uh, who struggles with shame. No shame in that. You hear people saying that there's no shame. And as you look around our culture, people are operating in all sorts of immoral ways and they have no shame about it. Not an ounce of shame. And we think they ought to be ashamed of the way that they're acting, but they're not. And sometimes we even fall into that category. And we act in ways that are not in keeping with God's will and we're not even ashamed of it. When we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. They struggled with shame. And so when Isaiah comes along and says, God is bringing forth the time in which shame will be no more, that is good news. It fell on their ears as good news. It should for us as well. And praise God, the cross. Back to the cross. That's the place where God removes our shame, where Jesus bears our shame so that we can receive honor. You see, in our sinful rebellion, we have dishonored our relationship with God. we brought shame upon ourselves. And in Jesus' culture, as we've been referencing, public honor was highly valued. The avoidance of public shame was crucial. Avoided at all costs. Now, we often talk, and rightly so, about the physical pain of the cross, which was excruciating, which is proof that God loves us, that God would allow His Son to... To experience that. That Jesus willingly experienced that for us. But for the folks in Jesus' day, there was a worse pain associated with crucifixion. Worse than the physical pain. It was the pain of humiliation. The pain of being shamed. Of being dishonored. Before the community. At the cross, Jesus honored. The one who has, who ought to have the utmost honor and dignity and glory in all the world, he is dishonored. It is stripped away, at least in the eyes of the witnesses. You see, in ancient times, honor was connected to the physical body. The head and the face, they were the most honorable parts of the body, and a person was honored by being crowned. But What did they do to Jesus' head and face? They didn't honor him by putting the crown of a king on his head. They dishonored him by shoving a crown of thorns on his brow and driving those thorns deeper into his skull until it brought blood. What else did they do to his head and his face? They struck his head repeatedly with that fake scepter they put in his hand, pretending that he was the king, and they spat in his face repeatedly they dishonored our lord they shamed him and the pain of the shame was worse than the physical pain for people living in this culture to maintain your honor you've got to keep yourself covered clothed what happens at the cross jesus is stripped of his clothing and they cast lots for it at the foot of the cross To be put on trial was shameful since it challenged your name and your reputation in the community. Jesus was put on trial. To carry your own beam to the place of execution is a form of shaming since you must walk through the crowds and everybody's got to see you on the place to crucifixion with that cross on your back. That's what Jesus had to do. Everything everything is done. We should see this in the accounts of the crucifixion. Everything is done to maximize the shame of Jesus. But you know the most profound shame that Jesus endures is being publicly separated from His Father on the cross. And we see in that one of His final statements, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The humiliation, the shame... That moment, Jesus in that moment is dishonored as a result of your sin, of my sin. He is humiliated as we deserve to be. He endured the shame that belongs to us. So, can you see what's happening here? Do you have the eyes to see? Can you see beyond the visible to the invisible work of God? Can you see just beneath the surface? at what is going on, at what is being accomplished. Despite the shame, the Bible tells us that Jesus has complete control over the situation. He says in John 10, I have the power to lay down my life. I have the power to take it up again. So even though Jesus is shamed and dishonored, never forget that He is in control completely of the situation. And not only does Jesus endure the shame, like our text said from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, one uh, 1 and 2. Verse 2. He endures the cross and he despised the shame. What does that mean, despised the shame? I'm going to adapt the words of John Piper here. It means that Jesus talked to the shame like this. The shame that he was experiencing. The shame that we deserve to experiencing. He said, listen to me, shame. Do you see what's being accomplished here? Do you realize that in three days' time, I will be alive again? Do you understand that I'm bringing about redemption for all humanity with all this? Compared to that, you are less than nothing, shame. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think you have power? Compared to me, you have none. You are worthless. You are powerless, shame. You think you can distract me? I won't even look at you. Why would I look at you? You're ugly and despicable. You think you're in control? You're not. And you're almost finished. You cover me as with a shroud, but before you can say so, there, I will throw you off like a filthy rag and I'll put on my royal robe. You think you're great, Shame? You think you have thoroughly humiliated me? You are a fool. You are a despicable fool, Shame. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools that you think are yours, they're actually tools of my father's to bring about salvation. You're a fool. And your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. So farewell, shame. It is finished. It is finished. He despised the shame. And what is stunning about the cross, if we have the eyes to see, is that God, in amazing fashion, turns the cross into an event that actually shames Satan and the forces of evil. It looks like an event that is solely shaming the Son of God, but Paul says the cross actually shamed the enemies of God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, At the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities, and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. At the cross, where it looked like God was defeated, He actually triumphed over them. Can you see all that when you look at the cross? Can you see how Jesus bore our shame? Can you see how he turned that experience into an event that shamed Satan and the forces of evil? And of course, the resurrection completely overturns Jesus' shame. And he is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Now as you can see, phew, there's a lot to take in with this idea and it feels to me that we have only scratched the surface tonight we're going to revisit shame and we're going to look at a really well-known story in the gospels but we're going to look at it from the perspective of this honor shame idea that we've talked about and hopefully we'll be able to see the parable of the prodigal son with brand new eyes And we'll come to appreciate that story, that parable of Jesus even more. So I know some of you just, for whatever reason, rule out coming back on Sunday nights. But I want to challenge you to come back tonight. Because we're going to revisit this well-worn, beloved story, this parable. And hopefully we're going to walk away with an even greater appreciation of that story. Most importantly, a greater appreciation of what God does for each of us. This morning, it's important for us to recognize our shame. That sin not only brings guilt, but shame. We ought to feel ashamed for our sin. Sometimes we don't. We struggle with that. We live in a culture where there is no shame. No shame in that. There's no shame in what you're doing. We ought to get to a place where we are so shaped by the Bible and by God's will that we do feel shame. But we must not drag that shame around with us forever. We must feel it. We must know that it grieves God. And we must bring it and lay it at the foot of the cross. That is why Jesus died. Jesus did not die so that you have to keep dragging that burden of shame around you with you forever. Jesus died so... As to remove your shame that accompanies your sin. And Jesus wants you to bring your shameful past to Him. So that He can take care of it. And the good news is, He already has. He wants you to come and to receive the gift of life. Of forgiveness. Of a life where you are no longer burdened not only by the guilt of sin, but by the shame of it. Will you come and receive the great gift of salvation offered by God through Jesus today? Do it right now as we stand and sing.